little change in program this morning. We are stepping out of 1 Peter for the week, and we are going to be in the Psalms. If you would like to turn in your Bibles along to Psalm 90, or um, you can just listen along either way. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it's renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. But their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as you have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to, your, to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Father, we petition you this morning, as we often do, that you would grant us the capacity to comprehend and really grapple with the truth of what your word conveys to us, Lord. We are dull of hearing and we are lazy and weak to respond to your truth. And we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning, that it would Help us to understand what you are communicating. Lord, that you would strengthen us through your spirit to respond in faith to those things, being effectual doers. Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning, that it would bear fruit among us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It really goes without saying that we live in a sin-cursed world. It goes without saying because the evidence is all around us and within us, and, and it's a constant thing. Mankind is evil to the core and exercises that evil in attitude and deed every day. And that evil of mankind has devastating effects on everyone and everything all you have to do is watch the news for a little bit, and you, that's very evident. But even within our own households, in our own lives, we see it manifest. 
All of us could also share in our own versions of loss and discouragement or even suffering that have resulted because of mankind's evil and a corrupt state of humanity. We not only experience these things on a personal level, but we see them on a societal level as well. I don't, I don't intend in any sense to minimize the pain of suffering, which is very real and demands compassion and love. Neither do I intend to minimize the grace of God in our lives. What I'm attempting to point out is that this sin-cursed condition of mankind is manifest in our own actions as well as the world's. We want things in this world to work out uh, according to our own demands. And God is the one that's supposed to work all that out for us according to those demands. But our problem is not that things don't work out the way we like them to. The problem is sin and the consequences of sin and how to deal with that sin. No other problem in life is as important as that issue. The scriptures testify to this sinfulness of our human condition from cover to cover. One of the most powerful examples is in the Old Testament, in the example of the nation of Israel, especially during this period of the Exodus. The Exodus was the most stunning Old Testament display of God's act as a loving redeemer. It, it was the most uh, pronounced example of God as a redeemer. By his mighty power and outstretched arm, he delivered the nation from bondage, even instituting Passover to teach them their need for innocent blood to sacrifice itself as a substitute for man's guilt. God showed his power and his glory to the people. He brought them out exactly as he said he would, and he left them with the, he, he led them out with the treasures of Egypt in their hands. God provided Moses as a human mediator and guide. God parted the Red Sea so they could escape. He destroyed the Egyptian army. He provided water from the rock and manna from heaven. He led them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He displayed his glory. He provided. He guided but he didn't do it exactly in the manner that pleased the Israelites. And so they grumbled, they complained, they constantly disobeyed and rebelled. And although God disciplined them for correction, things escalated to this golden calf incident. The just consequences of sin had now reached its pinnacle against Israel. God was about to obliterate them from the face of the earth. And he relented for the sake of his own name by the testimony of Moses. God was also refusing to be with the people any longer. He wouldn't, he wouldn't lead them. He says, I will not go with you any longer. You go, you go. But he says, my presence won't be with you. But again, he relented for the sake of his own name. Unfortunately, they still didn't learn their lesson. After God brought them safely to the land of promise, and he told them to enter in, they refused. They didn't trust God, and they didn't want to obey God. They said no. And the consequences resulted in the death of that entire generation. Their corpses 
being scattered throughout the wilderness. This passage that we began with, Psalm 90, is titled, The Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. It's actually oldest of our psalms in the book of Psalms. But it's entitled, The Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. It was written by Moses sometime during the Exodus and wilderness wanderings, but no one really knows for sure when it was penned. Some speculate that it may have been written after God threatened not to go before them any longer. Some believe that it may have been penned during the wilderness wanderings when people were dying off. We don't really know, but the psalm is fitting for all those occasions and may even be a reference to all that took place after that golden calf incident on till the end. However you look at it, Moses in this psalm is, is interceding on behalf of the people. It's, it's filled with plural, plural pronouns, our sins, our days, teach us, satisfy us, and so forth. So Moses is not interceding merely on his behalf. He's pleading on behalf of all of those, that entire nation. Psalm 90 is also a legitimate prayer. It contains all the correct aspects of prayer. It begins with recognizing the glory and the place of God, moves to a contrite recognition of man's frailty and guilt, and ends with a list of petition, petitions for God's mercy and for help. But the result of his prayer brings us to examine the real issues of both man and God, about sin and judgment, and about life and death. The truth God gave through Moses' prayer has tremendous implications for us all. And my hope is that as we move through this prayer, that it will have a sanctifying effect on everyone here. So let's begin by looking at the power and eternality of God. The power and eternality of God. Verse one's, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. These two verses are really well known. A lot, many of you are probably very familiar with those two verses because they sum up the glory and place of God so eloquently. But this first statement, you have been our dwelling place, would also have had deep-seated implications for the people of Israel who had never known a dwelling place. Going all the way back to Abraham, who was promised a land that he would call his own, Abraham died owning nothing other than a burial plot. He never saw the fulfillment of all that God promised. He never had a place of his own. Isaac and Jacob also lived in tents as their father did, and they were nomads in a land that didn't belong to them. Joseph started out the same as they, but was later sold to the Egyptians and lived almost his entire life in Egypt. Then the descendants of Jacob grew up and became a nation under oppression in Egypt, slaves in a land that wasn't their own. And now, after the exodus, they're wandering through a wasteland, dying off one at a time in a foreign desert. Abraham and his descendants had never known a true dwelling place. So why would Moses boast that they had always had a dwelling place? That's because God himself is a true dwelling place. Moses is essentially saying this. He's saying, 
we may never have had a land, Lord. It may be that we never owned an earthly residence, but our true home, our true dwelling place has always been you. You are our dwelling place. You have always been a true dwelling place. If only we would look to you. God had always made himself available to the people of Israel to take shelter in him, to abide with him. Out of all the people in the world, God invited the descendants of Israel to shelter in him. David, in fact, he he repeatedly decreed his longing to be in the presence of God, to constantly dwell with the Lord. Psalm 26.8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 27.4, one thing I ask from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Psalm 23.6, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The list of verses is almost endless, but David loved the presence of the Lord, and he longed to dwell in, in God, to dwell with him and in him. In our passage, Moses is pointing the people to God, pointing out that it is God who is the true protector, the true shelter, the one true refuge that they have never had. But the people longed for their own earthly home. They wanted their earthly land, and that was their focus. And they grumbled because they didn't get it. And unfortunately, earthly shelters are no shelter at all. It is God who was our true home. Why? Why is it that God is our true shelter? Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is God. He is the only true and living God. He is eternal in nature from everlasting to everlasting. And he created all things, brought everything forth. He gave them birth, it says in some translations. The point is that everything is, that, is, that he created exists because of him and depends on him in order to continue. And everything was meant to represent his glory. It was brought forth out of his nature and intended to magnify him. But God is uncreated. God is uncreated. He is eternal. The only self-existent one. Everything else is far beneath him. And it is hardly worth even being accounted. If God was not all of this, if he was temporary and subject to something other than himself, if God was not all-powerful, if he was not eternal, if he was not the creator of all things, he would not be a very good shelter at all. He would be like homes in downtown Kiev that are being destroyed as the army marches in. But he is God, and he is eternal, and he is the creator and the controller of all things, and he is the only true shelter for everything he has created. God is the only true and stable sanctuary, the only real protection. The only, uh, he alone is our provider. 
Everything he has created is so dependent on him, in fact, that anything that is outside of his protection can't survive. And so we enter the next portion of our prayer, the brevity and, the brevity and futility of man. Let's start in verses 3 through 6. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Mankind thinks it's so important. We really do. We all think we're so significant that our, every, all our deeds are so uh, impactful and important. In fact, man is nothing. It's God who speaks, and it is created, and it is God who speaks, and it is undone. Man is at God's disposal, not the other way around. Some translations use here children of Adam rather than children of man. It really means the same thing. God created Adam from dust, and God returns him and all his descendants back to dust. And it, it doesn't matter if you live to be a thousand years like Adam, like it says here. Adam is long gone, isn't he? You still would be gone in short order, and it would still seem like no time at all. Whether you live to be a hundred years or a thousand years, what does it matter? If you still pass quickly, in the sight of eternal God, it's as if you're already gone and done, as if you were gone yesterday. So to emphasize the point, Moses uses this metaphor of grass, field grass. He says the grass and the metal will sprout, it flourishes in its prime, it dries up and wastes away, and then it's gone. So it is with man. He's born. He grows to his prime age and he feels strong, has a lot of grand plans and serious ambitions in mind. But soon he realizes he is starting to waste away and very quickly he's gone. Not much different. And when you move on in life, when you get past your prime, the reality strikes every one of us. Well, how many of you think about this? Wow, I'm a lot closer to the end than I am to the beginning. Yeah, the reality strikes you. Isaiah asks some very penetrating questions in Isaiah 40 and is very fitting with some of our music this morning. And they, it can, his questions demand a very obvious answer. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span? And calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Who's directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who, as his counselor, has informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him the way of understanding? Behold, be astonished. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. The picture is you have your weights and you have your money 
and you say, oh, wait a minute, there's a little tiny speck of dust on the scale. No, nobody worries about that. Why? A speck of dust is nothing. It doesn't affect anything. That's all of humanity collectively. Behold, he lifts the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. But we regard ourselves as very important. And our earthly events seem so dreadfully important at the time. But the chasm that exists between this infinite God and his creation is far beyond measurement and limitless in scope. But we have a hard time seeing it. And how foolish that we try to take shelter in ourselves or in anything of this world. Our life is so brief and amounts to nothing because we are all guilty before God who is a perfectly righteous judge, as it says in verse 7, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years with a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon we are gone and we fly away. When I say that we are in a sin-cursed world, what I mean is that we are horribly guilty before an infinitely holy God. Our sins are exposed before him, our secret sins in the light of his presence, it says. You could take a large room, And you could put a large, colorful object in the middle of that room. But if the room is dark, you won't even notice it for lack of visibility, right? You can't see it. But if you flip the light switch on, a set of very bright light shining on this object, it illuminates it, and you are able to see every detail. This is our sin before God. It's illuminated It's not hidden. Every detail is seen and exposed. David said this in Psalm 139. He said, Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take my wings in the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day. For darkness is as light with you. There is nothing hidden from God. You're fooling yourself if you think it is. Everything that we do is right before him. 
He knows our thoughts and our words even before they occur. And, and David rightly says it's, it's too profound. He says, you know everything, but even this I can't even comprehend. And God can do nothing else but react in pure, perfect fury and wrath toward that which is an affront to his holiness. He can do nothing else. Imagine for a moment a courtroom. And there's a man on trial because he murdered the family next door. They made him mad, so he killed him. Father, mother, on down to the youngest child in the family. He slaughtered every one of them. And the trial finishes, and he's found guilty of first-degree premeditated murder on all counts. And rightfully so. Now imagine this man says to the judge, oh, I'm really sorry about that. I'll tell you what. Why don't you let me mow your lawn a couple times this summer and we'll call it even. Now imagine that judge says, yeah, I can accept that. Hits the gavel. What do you think the culture's response would be to that, the community? How would they respond? There'd be a lot of outrage. They'd, they'd want to string the guy up. They would get him removed from his bench. Why? Because this is a horrible, gross, unjust decision. It's unacceptable. Letting a guilty man go unpunished in exchange for a small personal favor? Are you kidding me? But this is how mankind tends to treat God. Many people like to think that their attempts at being good will somehow appease God and remove their horrible guilt. But God is righteous and just to a perfect degree. All things are laid bare before him and nothing is missed. He will expose all guilt and he will not allow the slightest infraction to slip by. God will administer proper judgment and no one will escape it. If he were to ignore any sin... Like this judge, if he, was, if he was just to ignore any sin against his nature, he would cease to hold that nature. He would no longer be who he says he is. But God will never, ever, ever deny himself. God will not deny himself. Therefore, the guilty will be punished, period. And so we see this partly in the futility and eventual death in this world. Verse 7, we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. This, this word consumed literally means to sweep away is what the word means. You may remember in March of 2011, an earthquake hit off the coast of Japan and created this massive tsunami that ended up wiping away whole cities and towns along with 28,000 people. The devastation was incredible, and I remember watching the TV at the time just feeling overwhelmed by the massive sense of loss, watching it happen before my eyes. But folks, all of humanity is going to be swept away. Every one of them is going to be swept away. The death rate's one per person, and we're all going to face it. The judgment of God is like a massive tsunami that will wipe out everything in his creation. Death is the inevitable effect upon corrupt flesh, and it is the correct consequence of our sin and our guilt. 
And it's interesting, the statistics, I looked them up. Statistically, the average lifespan in the world is 70 years. It's 80 years in countries that have advanced medicine. But Moses' words here are exactly right. <laughs> He's spot on. Our life is just a sigh, and we fly away. Think back over history. Think about the multitudes of generations that have gone before. They lived, they had their experiences, not much different from ours, and they died and they're gone. And their life experiences were filled with toil and trouble, just as verse 10 says, and so it is with our lives. They're filled with toil and trouble. Moses is petitioning on behalf of his people from during their lifetime back then. Do you remember each of these individuals, what they were like? Do you remember them? Of course not. No one does because they're gone. Long gone. Long gone. No, do their individual lives and their individual experiences of daily life matter to us now? All the details? No, not to us. We don't even know who they were, what they were like. But they're known by God. They're known by God. And they do matter to a righteous God who misses nothing and excuses no sin. But just as each of these people died and are gone from history, so we will all be gone. Even those individuals who are written in historical texts in our Bibles and seem so significant right now, are, as Isaiah said, nothing and less than nothing before God. They're but a speck of dust on a scale. So all of life's events, all of our sorrows, all of our victories, all of our benefits, all of our accomplishments, they add up to nothing apart from an eternal creator. Unless we shelter in him, there is no hope. There is no protection. Jesus told a parable in, in Luke 12 that it illustrates this so well. He said, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own all that you have prepared? And he finishes by saying, so it is with a man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Moses walked with the people through the wilderness day after day, week after week, month after month, through 40 straight years. And everywhere they stopped for a rest and make camp became a cemetery for the masses who died. They all died until the entire generation was gone. And I think Moses understood when he prayed this prayer that none of man's ambitions and his goals in this world, even the land of Canaan, held any real advantage unless one sought to dwell in the Lord. He finishes this portion of his prayer, 
Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? He poses a question in the negative. What he's essentially saying is no one understands. No one really understands. It's like it says in verse 5, it said that they're like a dream. It's the, it's the idea that a man is asleep and he's having dreams, okay? It's nothing substantive. It's nothing that really matters. But the real world, he's totally oblivious to, right? Because he's asleep. That's what mankind is like. They run around in this life acting like everything of this world is so important and they're oblivious to what really is important. That's, that's the picture. Moses says, who understands? No one can comprehend the full justice of God nor the magnitude of his wrath. The fact that our lives are short and end in death is a testimony to the justice of God but we don't understand how great our guilt is or how horrifying God's ultimate judgment will be. And unless God provides, unless God shelters us, every person will stand before God's righteous judgment. And so Moses rightly ends his prayer with petitions. He petitions for the favor of God. His first request is in verse 12 there. He says... He prays that God would teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We live in an educated society, and I bet everyone here understands arithmetic. We can all count numbers. We can count money, etc. Everyone here could probably count how many people are in this room or how many chairs are in the building. But I tell you, unless the Lord is your teacher, you cannot correctly number your days. It is the Lord who opens our eyes to look into the grave and to look towards the judgment that is ahead to realize how critical our situation is. And it's he who leads us to humility and fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The Israelites didn't need a promised land. They really didn't need a promised land. They needed a contrite heart before God is what they needed. And we don't need financial success, a life without problems, a peaceful society, political leaders with integrity. What we really need is a contrite heart before God. That's what we really need. A heart of wisdom, a heart that longs for him and seeks shelter in him. We need wisdom to see what really matters. So Moses prays this. He says, do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Sin drives away the presence of God. The consequences of that are tragic. That's what we talked about in the beginning. We can't imagine the painful experiences of this wilderness wandering as people are marching here and there with no destination except death. Can you imagine how how horrible and meaningless that would be every day. In a desert, what a pointless and painful life. But just as sin drives God away, repentance and humility on our part draws God's mercy. It turns God, in a sense, from a disposition of wrath to a disposition of mercy. Moses says, we are your servants. Please have mercy on us. Be sorry for us. He's asking that God would change his position, 
against them and, and change the ways that he's dealing with them in his just wrath. Do you know that unless God has mercy on us, there is no hope? There's no hope without God's mercy. There's nothing about us to make us presentable to him, and there's nothing in us that eventually wants God. But we can't even fix ourselves or save ourselves or provide for ourselves. Unless God has mercy on us, we are as hopeless as an Israelite traveling through the desert waiting to die. That's what we are. And so he continues, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. For Moses and the Israelites, they suffered through empty and painful days in a wasteland like we just described. But even if they were able to enter the promised land, they were not going to avoid the suffering of life. Apart from God's steadfast love, unless he has pity on us, there is no reason for joy and gladness of any kind. It is God that provides those things. God's mercy is the only hope for those who are under his wrath. Efforts to acquire true joy and gladness in this fleeting life, in this world, is foolish and futile. It, because it's before God that man is guilty, and it is God who is our shelter. A wise man turns to God and pleads for joy because that joy is only associated with the loving kindness of God, not in what we imagine are favorable earthly circumstances. All of us, in our own way, will experience affliction and will have to watch evil people seem to get away with perpetrating evil. It's going to happen. You're not going to evade that. But it is only through knowing the forgiveness and loving kindness of God that our days can produce true joy and gladness. Only God's extraordinary grace can cause trials to result in even greater gladness. And so in the manner of a child depending on a father, Moses pleads with God, please turn our sorrows into gladness. The next request is in verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to, your, to their children. The people had witnessed the glorious works of God's loving favor during the Exodus. They'd seen uh, the glorious representation of God, but now they experienced nothing but judgment and despair. Things had turned. Moses pleads that God would once again have mercy and display his works among them, his power to protect, to lead, to bless. Additionally, he pleads for the younger generations that they would witness the manifestation of God's character through his works of grace and his displays of goodness, that they would see it too. We can relate to these requests. We all long to see God working through and among us, and we, we desperately want to see God's grace rest upon our children as well. Moses is right to aim his requests in this direction. And then as a final petition in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Moses concludes by expressing his desire for God's approval upon the people once more. Favor, it implies that God takes delight 
in something and approves of it. God, look favorably at us and help us to do your work, your will in your way. The people have lost their focus. Many never had the right focus. But they had lost their focus and, and, and not only refused to do God's work, but they had lost God's favor in the process as well. Moses pleads with God to reverse this process, to give value and meaning to what is being done in life right now. The wilderness wandering must have seemed like there was no significance in life any longer, just wandering and dying. But we tend to do the same, wandering around this life, doing nothing without, with significance or meaning. And he says, help us to gain approval. Help us to do your will and to be about doing your work. Only God can produce a true sense of value in life. Otherwise, it's, it's totally meaningless, just like, a, again, an Israelite wandering through the desert. All these petitions for Moses are a right response, a response that each individual should have been crying out in that nation on their own. But Moses had to be the one praying on their behalf. So as, as we conclude things, I want to go through a few points here. I want to start with addressing those who are trusting in your own goodness to save you. You will not escape the righteousness of God. Your days are numbered, and then comes judgment. No one here communicates a message to you like this out of a feeling of superiority or some kind of personal criticism. It's our expression of love when we warn you. You will not set your own standard. The standard is set by God and is God. And there is no favoritism with God and no partiality. This is that analogy of that judge. There, there's no boasting of personal goodness. Everything will be judged according to our sinful acts and the sinful heart that those acts stem from. And each person is storing up wrath unto the day of wrath. God will take vengeance righteously upon that sin. The good news, though, is that God's grace has been manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who willingly took upon himself all of God's wrath so that those who humbly confess their sin and their guilt and repent and turn and trust fully in Christ for forgiveness will be forgiven of that guilt. This is where love and mercy meet. God will not let the guilty go unpunished. It won't happen. But by his mercy, he has taken that wrath out on the Son of God for all who believe and trust in him. There's no other way. There's no other protection. There's no deliverance. There's no shelter other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way provided by God through which a person can be saved from their own guilt. But for those who do believe, first... We all need God to help us number our days so that we continually live with eternity and our Lord at heart. It takes constant effort for us to remind our hearts that this world is not our home. We'll soon depart. It's faster than we think. It all goes by much faster than we think. 
I, I often say that life is like a roll of, of toilet paper. The closer to the end you get, the faster it goes. <laughs> and it's, it's true. The older I get, it's, it's like the years just fly by. I couldn't believe it was Christmas already. And now I'm looking and I was like, wow, we're in March. It, it just seems surreal that time flies by so quickly. We need to remember that life is but a moment and that our true shelter is found in the Lord. Second, we need to pray that God would help us to rejoice in the Lord every day. We should be rejoicing. People who are full of gladness, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, we have no reason to despair in this world, no matter what our circumstances. Sorrows will come. Pain is real, but our hope is fixed. God's wrath toward us is greater than we understand and we owe an eternal debt. I hope that sinks in. Our, our, our debt to God, our penalty before him is eternal in nature. The only way it could have been paid is by somebody who had eternal value. The power and the value of the Son of God was infinite in value and in extent. But the power, uh, only only he could have handled the weight of God's full wrath towards all of us and paid for all of it. And though we are utterly undeserving, like the Israelites, the Israelites who acted so wickedly, we are just as undeserving as they are. God not only transferred our guilt to Christ, but transferred his perfect righteousness to us. We are forever in God's good favor and will forever be in his presence, sheltered in him. That will never change. We possess the, the greatest reasons to rejoice together. Third, our prayers should be the same of Moses, that, that God would work in us for his glory and pleasure, using our hearts and our hands to do so. What a joy to have work that is favored by God. It is established by him. And oh, that we would be more committed to these efforts and not treat them with a doldrum attitude. Fifth, we should desire for God to reveal himself to us and to our children. I don't mean in some mystical sense, like, you know, God, he has graciously given means by which we can seek after Christ. But God is found by those means. If we neglect them or don't desire them, we're not going to gain. Sixth and final application, we should be uh, stable even in difficult times because we are satisfied with his mercies. Let's not be discouraged that the world acts like the world. It's going to do that. We can't change that. Life is full of hardship, suffering, even persecution, but all these things will soon pass. Like Christ, we should be motivated by the joy of what lies before us. Let's not be distracted by the world either. We allow ourselves to get so easily distracted since we'll also soon pass away from here. This isn't our home. Remember Hebrews 12, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're sheltered in God and should have no fear. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations from before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so God, we ask that you would bless us, that you would help us to take these things to heart, that we would consider who we are and that we would rejoice that we take shelter in you. Lord, we ask that you would bless the work of our hands, that what we do would be your will and for your glory. Lord, teach us to be stable even in the hardest situations in life, that we would have the capacity to rejoice in Christ, to understand the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of Christ and what has been given to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to number our days, that we would have wisdom, that we would not just act like a person wandering around in a desert waiting to die, but that our life would have significant meaning and purpose fixed in Christ with great joy and gladness. We thank you for this prayer of Moses and for the significance that it has for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would, again, be effectual doers. Thank you, Father, for our, the redemption that we share together. Pray that you would fill our hearts with gladness even this morning. And we pray it in Christ's name.